Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello, and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with m attorney, Joe Principe. Thank you for being on the show today, man. Hey, yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. So we've had some attorneys on the show before. You and I were talking about what to talk to now. I think there's some cool stuff we can do today. So it'll be unique. So if you listen to shows, with the, if you're out there, you're listening, you're like, hey, I listened to a show on your show with attorneys before. This will be different. We've got some cool stuff coming up for you. So hang in there and listen with us. Let's start where we start with most people, though. What got you into M&A law? Kind of, I always joke around with the same joke is like you were born and now you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisitions. Could you fill out the gap in between? But mostly focused on what yeah. put you into M&A law, why you like this. And let's tell the audience kind of who you are and what you're up to. Yeah, sure. So I wasn't one of those guys who grew up and went to business school or studied economics and was like, I'm going to be an M&A lawyer and probably I went to law school. I wanted to be a litigator. Ultimately, I got a job out of law school doing M&A and finance. That's just how I started my career. It's kind of innocuous. What ended up happening was I ended up starting at the number one international M&A law firm. They're called Freshfields, Bruckhaus, Derringer. They're a UK and Germany firm, of course, the two biggest economies in Europe and European businesses tend to be very international. They tend to own a lot of stuff throughout Asia, South America. So we did, we did cross-border, massive international transactions. Everything we did was, well, a hundred million plus, a billion plus. They're another big law firm I worked out. And so everything we did was in the news. It was really cool. I really liked the work. It's very sophisticated, complicated stuff, especially when you're around those type of people. It's like, you're just in a room of really smart people and there's nothing funner than that. And so that's where I started off enjoyed it. I ended up then working at Baker McKenzie, a top five by gross revenue or keep up with the lead. But they've been consecutively top five by gross revenue, global law firm for several years. I went and worked, I began working at Baker's in the same space, finance and M&A. I worked at both those places in their Japan office. So I speak Japanese. I lived in Japan for a long time. I studied abroad there for a couple of years. So I worked at Baker's, continued doing the same thing. After that, I ended up building, or I ended up working in-house at some tech businesses, and then I ended up building and running my own businesses. So to this day, right now, I practice in my M&A firm. So I have a lot of clients in M&A, and then I also own some businesses. And after a few years of building businesses and stuff, as a lot of people do say, there's so much, only so much new effort that you want to wring yourself dry out of every single day. So I very much so lean into my expertise in M&A and in some business spaces that I'm good at and kind of repeat myself there. 
and then I'll do a few little fun things on the side. But so that brought me to this point now for the last few years where I'm focusing almost all my time just on m and I find that in America with searchers, with these smaller deals that people really do find a lot of value in my sophisticated experience in the because I'm used to working with these, again, like Wall Street banks, private equity guys, everything is very serious. So I was kind of put through that trial by fire and when it comes to learning and uh, people, I'm able to really help people out. I'm able to help people dodge bullets. Even in these small deals, people are, people are at risk of losing their money and there's nothing worse than thinking you're doing a win or thinking you're gaining something. And a few months later, you do a deal and you're like, oh my gosh, what did I do? And so we could talk about that today. What are these bullets I'm talking about? What are some big issues I see pretty frequently in these smaller deals and things that I have found that I repeatedly advise or repeatedly see and people do get value out of? A lot of the guys out there teach in this space and in the space I'm referring to are just below the investment banks, P&E guys, right? A lot of the guys listening to this show are acquisition entrepreneurs and their goal is to buy something. Either some of the guys are buying whole guys are going to buy small companies that SBA range between zero to $5 million in valuation. And there's guys that listen to the show, quite a few that kind of go right up to their industry's line where the private equity plays. So, so in like manufacturing and stuff like that, it might be 25 million valuation. And in some industries, it dips all the way down into the $10 million range. But everybody listening here that most of the guys that say everybody, there's a certain percentage that are probably above that. But most people here in this small to medium space businesses. So that said, there are a lot of guys and I've taken a few courses where they're talking about trying to do primarily seller finance deals where the seller's financing a lot of it. And inside of that, they say that, that makes you a lot more protected from risk and a lot less needing of attorneys to do the deal. And I don't necessarily agree with it. So my question to you is, at what size of a deal should a mergers and acquisitions attorney, somebody that knows, not your family attorney that set up your corporate bylaws and your LLC, but an attorney that knows the space, at what point should they be involved? Yeah. So, I mean, when you've seen the things I've seen, and that's typically the story with attorneys is when <laughs> they've seen how it goes wrong. When you see the same things I've seen, there's no choice but to use an attorney on every deal. Now, if you're doing a $100,000 deal, he's only going to have to do a few hours of work. So things do scale. <laughs> so if you're, I like to make an analogy because a lot of people have this experience. You buy a $500,000 million dollar house. There's a lot to that process, not as much as buying a business. But unless you were, for example, a real estate broker and you just know everything about that state and all the issues that can come up, you definitely need a sophisticated broker or an attorney on your transaction, or you will, <laughs> you will lose a lot of money. So by analogy there with an attorney, if you're spending a few million dollars, why would you not want that protection? And we'll get into some of the things of, so what is there to be protected from? Everything looks fine. When you don't know what you don't know, that's when you get hurt. I say every transaction, we definitely do see a lot of people when they're sub 250K that they just can't be helped for an attorney. We also see people that do get an attorney in those in that space. But I mean, most typically it's at 500K plus where people feel the urgency that they need an attorney. 
I had a broker friend of mine reach out and said, hey, do you have an example of an earnout clause inside of a contract? It's like, yeah, absolutely. You probably should have an attorney draw it up. He goes, I just want to see what it looks like. So I sent him something out of uh, one of my contracts I had drawn up. Deal didn't get done, but we were, it was a pretty good sized company. So, and he's like, that's pretty lengthy. Why is it so long? I said, well, Snipbick guy just grabbed you and gave you the earnout clause, section two something through whatever is out of a 96 page document of an access purchase agreement. His response was 96 pages. Now, two people asked me for this. One of them, like 96 pages. Um, why is it so long? I said, well, it's 20 something million dollar company, and the reps and warranties section of that is pretty long, right? When you're taking, especially when you're using institutional money, because this was a deal I was just a member of. When you're using institutional money, they want certain protections, right? If you're looking at getting reps and warranties insurance on particular deals, they want certain protections in the contract, right? So that's why I was asking, like, at what level should an attorney get involved? Honestly, I think at any level, right? Especially on the due diligence side of it. Let's walk through the process, right? Somebody's thinking about, I always kind of do seller, then buyer, then advisor. But just okay. somebody's looking to sell their company. When should they call their attorney? <laughs> like they're going to start calling people. They're going to call their CPA. They're going to need to call their attorney. And then eventually they're going to pick a broker. But at what point should the attorney know, the attorney know that things need to be starting to get ready to sell? Yeah, I can touch on that. And we could talk a little bit about problems with burnouts too, when you mentioned that. Here we talk about when to talk to an attorney. I think it's important, first of all, to understand that when you talk to an M&A attorney, it's not like talking to a general business attorney. Oh, like I'm selling my car. People don't even do it for a car, but they should. I'm selling this thing or I need a marketing contract. I'll go get it from a business attorney. That's it. It's kind of like a guy who gives you forms or it's kind of like a guy who might, he might give you one piece of legal advice. That's just not really how M&A works. So in the M&A space, there's a lot of things that are standard practice that you need to be doing from even the stage of considering selling your business. So I would recommend that you use your M&A attorney as a sounding board from the very beginning of who you're thinking, okay, I own this business, I want to sell it. I think you should use your M&A attorney as a sounding board, the listing broker as a sounding board, and a CPA as a sounding board. At the very beginning, talk to them, explain to them what you're doing, Get information out of them. Ask questions like, what should I be looking for? What are reasons other people have sold their business and have failed at doing it? Use them as a resource for, especially if you're a first-time seller and you don't know the ropes and you kind of just think it's easy. There's not much to it. There, there is a lot to it. So use them as that sounding board. Get their guidance. You don't need to, for an attorney, you don't really need to, as a seller, you don't really need to start paying a lot or paying the substantial amount or material amount of his fees until you're doing the agreements. So up until that point, which is down the line after you have a buyer lined up and you feel like you're ready to hire an attorney and you feel like you're ready to spend maybe a couple, it depends on the attorney and on the deal, but let's just use the phrase several, spend several hours worth of legal fees. That's the kind of later on when you get there. At the beginning, you could have a half an hour conversation with them. They might even do, do the first consult or the first few hours for free just because you're talking about a potential deal. And you'll get so much value out of that. Don't just kind of play Google. Like, oh, Google will tell me everything I need to know. That's not really a legitimate way to do. I like to say to people, when you're dealing with million dollar or multi-million dollar transactions for potentially the first time, 
Now's not the time to pretend you're an accountant. Now's not the time to pretend you're a lawyer and get your Google law degree. You learn along the way, but definitely don't start mistaking what you're not an expert in for what you are an expert in. This whole thing with the chat GPT that came out, I actually have it open right now. I use it constantly. The trick is, is it's brilliant and it's only as powerful as knowing the right questions that when you were brought in up, don't become a Google attorney or like a lot of people become Google doctors before they go see their doctor. Right. And it really makes doctors mad. The problem is if you don't know the basics and know what questions to ask, then you're not going to get a full picture of it. So I interviewed ChatGPT as if it was one of my guests. And then I put Uh-oh. it in, I did. It, it, there's an episode a few weeks ago. It's out there if you want to see it. But I interviewed it as if it was one of my guests. I went as far as putting the transcript. I asked it questions. Based off its responses, I asked deeper questions. And then I stuck it into a tool that actually deep faked the voice for the ChatGPT. And for fun, I trained it on my voice and it deep faked my voice. So it's not me either right? It's close to my voice. Its voice sounds better than mine because I didn't spend a lot of hours. I kind of didn't want this tool to really be good at my voice. I just kind of wanted to be good enough to be cute for the show. But I was like, I don't know that I really want it to be really good because I don't know this. I paid this company $20 a month, but that's not enough to have a good signature of my voice. I guess they could do it anyway because they they have hours and hours and hours of my recordings because we use it for editing. It did a really great job, probably one of the better interviews I've done. But I interviewed over 100 people. I spent over 200 hours asking questions between pre-interviews and interviews and stuff. I knew what to ask next. And that's what my biggest concern is people going to use this for. You ask it right now to write up an LOI, it'll write one. And it's very, I refer to the chat GPD as like a 10-year-old kid. It's confident incompetence. It's confident. Sorry, I think I made the word mess up. Confident. It's confident in what it tells you, but a lot of times it's incompetent in what it delivers because you didn't ask it right. It's only as good as the prompt. I've seen that people, like there was even a book, book we'll call it a PDF. On, there's a website called Product Time. You might yeah. know them. And this guy had posted a week or two, a couple of weeks ago. He posted this book where it was 150 chat GPT prompts that kind of spit out the book and that was it. And I thought it was really awesome. It's like, oh my gosh, this is so much better than Google. I'll <laughs> dump all day, even though great company and great technology, I'll still make fun of them. That GPT is so stellar. And when it comes to looking for information, it is now my number one go-to source. I just go there and I'm, I just talk to it. It's a little creepy. I talk to it for a bit. The way you can talk to it, it can be super colloquial. When it comes to the legal stuff, it does a really good job, but you don't know what it doesn't know. And every time I do it, because I've asked it legal questions, I already know the answer to just to see how it performs. And we'll get like 85% of it right. It's a C student. It's a B student or a C student. It's exactly what it is. And I don't want to hire a C attorney. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. When you're at a big firm and you see the documents and how they deal with documents, and then you look at a rocket lawyer or legal Zoom document or something, you Google, hey, I want this type of document. And when you look at them, it's night and day. It's not the same thing. It's very dangerous to think that those forms are good. There is a good resource, though, I would like to point people to. SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, has a website. Let's just call it, you just type in SEC Edgar. This is what mm-hmm. you do. Type in SEC Edgar, like the normal, like the person name, E-D-G-A-R. Now, Edgar is a place where companies 
big companies, when they buy and sell businesses or when they do securities offerings, they're required to file certain documents with the SEC. So you could get big law firm contracts like the highest quality agreements. These are not crappy forms you'd find on the internet and pay 50 bucks for. These are things that big attorneys billing a thousand, two thousand dollars an hour, spent tens, hundred plus hours working on. And you can get them and read them for free online. I would totally go in and type in purchase agreement, SEC Edgar, then type in the name of a big law firm like Wachtell, W-A-C-H-T-E-L-L. And then it'll give you an agreement made by Wachtell. That's a purchase agreement. Obviously, every agreement's different by the transaction, so don't mistake yourself. But you can learn so much just by reading those and being like, what does this provision do? What is it protecting the buyer or seller from? How does it operate? That's the, a way, that's a course to becoming a master from the legal perspective. I mean, it takes years and stuff, but that's a course to really learn so much as to what's going on in these agreements and from tax provisions to reps and warranties to covenants, et cetera. Sounds like something I would dig into, not because I'd ever write my own contracts. I think it's a bad idea, but I love developing what I refer to as my BS meter. Like, I want to know enough about a subject if I hire you to do it and I read what you've done that I have a meter that go, that's, that looks really good. Or man, that's, I'm, I'm that way with real estate. I've done so many real estate transactions. I can look at a real estate contract and go, yeah, I don't think you've had an attorney draw this up. It's a mess. Or I can look at it and go, that's pretty good. You covered all your normal stuff inside of that. That said, I think I want to develop that set of, when I look at something, like I, I told you, that one document we have, it's 96 pages. Our attorney fees for that little thing, that roll up was 60 something thousand dollars. And we hadn't, they hadn't gotten negotiations yet. That was just setting up all our, our complex documents because we were doing this really weird waterfall effect and only participating in the upside of the transaction stuff. It was fairly complicated of oh. a transaction on a roll up. But that said, it was just like, okay, here's your, that was a LOI and the purchase and sell agreement. And I think our legal fees were up to 60 grand already. I guess a few come to mind when you say that is the simpler you keep things, if you do a straight purchase and you don't mm. try and overcomplicate or invent any, don't try too much financial wizardry. Even if you are, you have really great things you can do financially, I'm not saying don't apply lessons learned in relation, relation to financing mechanism, et cetera. But there's a point at which you're increasing the transaction cost, we call it from a legal perspective. So straight transactions, cheaper. And my second point that, I, that came to mind was people should be aware of the general prices, a million to $10 million deal. It's going to be 15 to 35 grand on a typical transaction. Everything's different. Some sellers are going to negotiate the heck out of it. And you're 10 hours and you're 20 hours in negotiation. They're wasting time on the clock. They're just killing it. It doesn't mean you can't get the deal done, but it does mean it's going to take a little bit more effort. There's going to be more back and forth between the attorneys and that's obviously build. So another thing I guess I want to point out there is treating working with your attorney as a project management exercise where you plan out in advance what needs to get done, how long it's going to take, when it's going to be done by. And definitely don't hound your attorney and treat him like a third rate employee. You're going to get fired as a client quickly. <laughs> but if you do that and you set general goals and objectives, that's the way to getting the lowest price. That's the way to making sure the attorney's not overbilling or not just wasting time on, oh, he did 50 hours to make a document, stuff yeah. like that. That's a good way to keep the price down and to make sure you're getting everything you need and not missing anything. 
the interesting area I want, I want to step back because there's some concern I had about something we said earlier. There's sure. a difference between a corporate attorney and an M&A attorney in my mind. The guy that drives up, draws up your LLC, your operating agreement, and helps you file paperwork with the, with the state isn't necessarily, in my opinion, I want to get your opinion on this, isn't necessarily the same guy you want to negotiate the purchase or sell of your company. There are two different expertise inside of law. Not every business attorney is an M&A attorney. Do I have that assumption correct? Almost correct. As with everything in law, there's a little bit of a twist there. So you're entirely, almost entirely right. And just to kind of point out what I mean there is, uh, this is going to be really great for the audience to kind of get an understanding of. Every single law firm in the country has a different way of explaining what their corporate or their M&A or business or commercial practice group is. And they have a different way of explaining what their core set of expertise is. So it's very hard for a non-attorney to kind of look at the firm and see, oh, a corporate group, that's M&A, right? At one firm, it, it is a corporate is M&A. At some firms, corporate is general corporate matters and not M&A. And then there's a separate group. At some firms, it's a subgroup. It's all over the place. So right in the sense that sometimes there is alignment, but you definitely don't want to make assumptions. And you just want to ask. You just want to get to the bottom of it. Definitely look for the letters M&A and not the word corporate or business or commercial. Okay. What would be some good things to ask an attorney to know that they're confident in the mergers and acquisition? Like if I go into there, I'm going to either buy a company or sell a company and I see their company there, maybe it's an independent attorney or the, or it's a full blown firm. I see that they offer the service of buy, helping you negotiate the purchase of a company or something. How, yeah. Are there things I need to ask that attorney other than, can you give me five examples of deals you closed? <laughs> I mean, are there things that you would ask if you were, like looking for somebody to help you on a transaction or something? That's really a great question. And I think that it's definitely like kicking the tires on a car. It's very easy to figure out ultimately whether or not you're going to be getting what you need. So the first thing I would ask is what you just said. I would say, send me your deal sheet. In that deal sheet, it needs to have, well, I mean, honestly, if the person's only been doing million dollar transactions for 20 years, that's kind of a red flag. It might sound great, but it's really not in the M&A world. The person should be, you want somebody who's done 20, $50 million plus transactions at a bare minimum, because that's really where you're, that's where you're dealing with somebody who's in or been in a practice group or in a sophisticated environment. That's really just been honed down on these transactions. If somebody's just been a solo practitioner dealing with small deals for a lot of years, they simply weren't trained. And there's a lot of people that are great in all these buckets. So I'm not pointing any finger, but there's just a difference in training environment and experience and caliber for sure. So I would look at the firms the person's been associated with. I'd go to Chambers, which is one of the lawyer rankings websites, and check the rankings of those firms. No offense to smaller offices in country or not in big towns because I live in the countryside nowadays. I love it. There's a lot of great attorneys out there. But I definitely, if I were to hire an M&A attorney, I wouldn't. I mean, I definitely have represented myself before in selling my own business. If I were to, I would only go for a New York or like a LA or a San Francisco lawyer. I know it kind of sounds a little being like I'm being a little picky, but that's simply how the market works. I would want to make sure and check, has this person worked for a New York firm? And that's where you're going to really know whether the person's a, a super high caliber person 
or not. And again, not being judgmental there. New York attorneys are trained differently. New York is the capital of America when it comes to M&A. There's only a few other cities in the entire world, like Tokyo, where I was at, or like London, where I also lived at. There's only a few places in the entire world where you can even see the expertise. It's weird. Law is weird in that way. And you might know that. But a lot of people just don't aren't aware that these are like just where the banks are and where the big firms are. There's it's night and day there. You'd be surprised at how many small business owners when I asked them, OK, we're going to go through this process. I'm interested. You're interested. When we get to the point where we're doing contracts, who's going to represent you on your side? Who's your attorney? And because I'll ask, you'd be surprised at how many times I get told, well, we have a family attorney we've been using for years. Or we have a business attorney that helped me set up the LLC. And I would, I always, because what it does is eventually kills the deal because I'm going to use somebody that knows mergers and acquisition and he's not going to speak the same language as your family attorney who set up your LLC, right? Who's a broad practice attorney who's not in that corporate space on a day-to-day basis as much. So, and I've seen it, I've seen it twice right now to where I wasn't the acquirer, but I was in the deal, helping with the deal and guy uses family attorneys. The same attorney that did his divorce (laughs) had a guy in the office that does LLC formations, trusts, and some other stuff. And so they they were handling his side of it. And when our, the attorney we were using, start talking about reps and warranties and all this stuff, he's like, what's all this stuff in this contract? It's overdone. And it was just really knee-jerk reaction because he just hadn't seen that that stuff. And it pretty much killed the deal because the owner, the business owner is like, I'm not promising any of this stuff, right? I thought you were just wanting to buy the business. Yeah, M&A is definitely a subspecialty in law, and you definitely want a guy who does that. And that's another question you could ask is, so how much of your practice is just an A? And if somebody says, oh, 10%, 5%, that's not what you're looking for. And again, I'm not trying to be over general, but that's a great general rule to live by. It's percent Well, M&A attorneys, so I guess the real lesson I'm trying to get across there is M&A attorneys they do M&A. They don't do other stuff. So uh, let's talk about the contracts that are out there. I seen one of the notes you gave me ahead of time is like business owners and or buyers signing contracts that the seller or the buyer just gives them without having it reviewed and stuff. What are some of the horror stories? I know you've been in this industry for quite a while. Like what are some of the stories you've had where people got themselves into trouble for not making sure they did their full legal due diligence and or had great contracts in place? Yeah, no, totally. This is one of those very sketchy spots. I'll kind of start off with a little bit of an introduction and some context here. The general concept or thing to always carry with you is the seller broker is going to give you some doc- or the, the listing broker, seller's broker is going to give you some documents. He's going to tell you to sign them. It's in his interest to get you to sign them as soon as possible. Those are not documents that were drafted in your favor. He might even say, hey, the state provided these documents. These are what everyone uses. Does that sound like sound legal advice? That that sounds like a way of trying to convince you to sign something without the review of an attorney. So those documents famously known by M&A attorneys are horrible. And I haven't seen one ever that was good and ever that I told a client to sign without at least some material provisions. They're that bad. And so these brokers, they're not attorneys and they're kind of just giving you forms. 
neither should, of course, I think this is obvious, but just to state it, neither should you be expecting or taking any advice from them or asking them any questions. They are simply not aligned with your interests. There is a conflict there. They might even ask you to sign the waiver of the conflict of interest. Again, do not do that. So that's kind of the foundation there. These documents are bad news. Don't sign them. Have your attorney review them. And if your attorney is not asking for revisions, then you don't have an M&A attorney probably. So what's wrong with these documents? What's going on here? Well, they're usually kind of, they're usually all about some of the basic terms that protect the seller. There's usually a lot of terms in there that protect the broker. I mean, kind of obvious. Those are the guys giving you the forms to sign. They're usually missing a lot of the extremely important provisions that would protect you if you were a buyer. Now, we could talk about this conversely if you're the seller, but right now I'm just kind of going from this talk from the perspective of you being the buyer. So I'll get into some examples of what's wrong there, but why don't I go ahead and liaise this into a story. Now, obviously, attorney-client privilege, I do not give any personally identifying information ever. I can generally tell you of some recent stories using general words. So I'll tell you a not so bad story first. We have a recent client who was buying a business. He didn't think he had signed anything. Comes to us and said, hey, I haven't signed anything yet. I need you to review these documents before closing. It turns out that the broker, the listing broker, had gotten him to sign the purchase agreement like three months before. And now he was asking him to sign all the closing documents, several other documents to wrap up the transaction. So we get in there and we see him. And not only did the client not know he had signed this really big, arduous document that is totally horribly drafted that would leaves him open to so many risks. But now the broker was trying to jam down his throat, all these other documents. The day I get in the transaction, the broker is literally shouting me down saying, no, your client needs to sign these documents right now. My response is obviously, my client's not signing anything until I get the addenda. They're gonna apply his protection and revisions to your draft. Their response back is, we've had enough of this. What is that? Is that conducive to making a transaction close? For me, I was just like, come on, this is not how things are done. And you should be aware of that. If you're getting pressure from people, to do things, don't fall in line to what somebody else is telling you to do. Follow the advice of your counsel, who's looking out for your interests, not the other side ever. I told him, no, we need to revise this. The client completely understood what I was saying. Thankfully, he was very understanding and he got the picture because some clients are like, but I really want to close. Can I just sign it? He got the picture. He knew that he couldn't sign it. So a few days later, the broker explodes a couple of, they exploded a couple of times. The whole deal is off completely. With the point in mind that the only way they wanted to go, the only way they were gonna do it is if, the, if my client signed all their documents, which were missing so much, it was horrifying. So that's one, one example, it's very common by the way, and that's why I tell that he got out, he got protected, he did not get into the fire. So that's more of an innocuous example. Kind of moving on to a horror story. What happened when the guy signed the document? We were brought in later to review stuff. We were not the counsel. We weren't a part of the transaction when stuff was signed. So what goes wrong? What's missing? What's the horror story here? Here's a, a, a story about another client. 
And but, did you have any questions, by the way, before I kind of just continue on there? No, I've seen some of the bad contracts that are out there. I've seen non-disclosure agreements that basically had non-compete clauses. And it's like, look, I'm buy I'm looking to buy companies in this industry. By default, I'm going to compete with your guy if he doesn't sell his company to me. So I'm not signing anything that has non-compete language in an, in an NDA type of document. Like It was very broad, too. Like, buyer will not compete in this industry, blah, blah, blah. And I was like... How am I supposed to sign that, right? I'm going to look at 100 of these before I actually pick, not necessarily 100, but I could look at 100 of these before I like, say that's the one. But the other one was is the lifetime things of some of those contracts, right? Like you know, buyer agrees never and like, like never, ever, ever kind of contact the seller again. Like, wait a second. What if he's selling something else? A lot of these guys are serial entrepreneurs, right? I make really good friends with buyer or sellers when I talk to them because if I look at their history, they built something, they sold it, they're building something new. I might buy it and I'm hoping if they build something later on and I'm a good buyer, they'll call me again, right? So I don't want to sign something that says, if your buyer brings me something I don't buy, that I can never contact that individual again. And some of it's like, you could tell like the broker wrote it almost because it was just so broad oh. in protecting him that That's... it's just stupid. So yeah. So let's fish the your story there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great example, by the way, is like, why is this provision in this agreement that's not about this agreement is about that provision. That's hilarious. That's how it works. It slipped in everywhere. Yeah. So kind of getting into the story to set the stage, we get involved in this transaction and to keep it short, I don't want to eat up too much time with these stories, but we get brought into the transaction. The buyer had signed up all the documents. The seller decided they didn't want to transfer the crown jewel asset of the business. It's mind-boggling. It's completely insane. It doesn't make any sense. And so we're brought into review and to see what's going on, really. We get in there and we, and this seller is just the slimiest of the slimy. He's one of those guys that thinks he's, if you think that you're getting by, like on all of your wit, that's probably a sign that maybe you should kind of rethink how you think about things. He thought he was just the smartest guy in the world. But let me tell you, he's not a lawyer. And for some reason, he thought he was going to be skating by us. You know what I'm saying? He was going to get away with this. It was completely insane. So I get on the phone with him, and he just sounds crazy. And here's the deal. So he signed, the buyer signed these documents. And there was a few issues. He does have the protections or certain protections, and particularly under state law, that protect him. So it's great. So he's doing good. But it could have been a lot better. So, for example, in the asset list, it didn't even list the asset. I mean, what are we talking about here? Like, who's your attorney? Your attorney definitely needs to be listing all your assets in your asset list. Thankfully, there was a catch-all clause that covered it. Separately, there was actually a couple that covered it. But you can't be relying on, like, triple netting for big problems in your documents. That's not the best way to go about things ever. It actually didn't list several assets in the asset list. It was pretty confusing just looking at it. It's like, this isn't the business you bought. I mean, the assets aren't even in there. The seller and the seller broker, obviously, I think they didn't even know it was, or the listing broker, I don't even think they knew what was going on either, though, because just the stuff was just missing. It's not in their interest to make sure the asset list is perfect. But if stuff's missing in there, technically it benefits them. But technically it's good. Right now, the buyer's in the red. They bought the business and the business doesn't really, doesn't run, technically does not run as, as sold to them. But we're definitely going after the seller 
we're definitely going to make the seller give us that. And that's what we're doing. But you don't want to wind up in litigation. That's not your goal when you're doing a deal. You don't want to line up in a, wind up in a dispute or any type of conflict. You want to be so protected at every step that you're just good to go from the close of the transaction. So we came in, we're going after the guy and we know that the different, different issues and state law protection and stuff to apply. So we're going to be successful in that on the recoupment phase, but that's just all the headache, all the trauma. That is not where you want to be when you're supposed to be stepping into a business that is running very smoothly and you kind of just smooth on in there. You don't want to make a bunch of big changes suddenly. Accept your win is kind of the feeling that it should be as opposed to, oh, crap, what happened to me? I've actually seen real estate contracts where it was written in the contract that you waived your, the contract was a contract and you're waiving your rights to certain things that were state law. And I had to explain to the guy, look, that doesn't exist inside of contracts, right? Contract law is contract law. I'm not an attorney, but I'm pretty damn sure that if the state has a law or the, or there's a contract law around for a particular thing, you're not going to be able to just wave it with a single line inside of your contract. Right? So like, I think it's a scare tactic more than anything. But a lot of people just don't get that, that they can't just, you just can't write a contract to say anything you want it to say and have it totally hold up. There's a reason why there's contract law. There's a reason why the states have certain laws about certain transactions and stuff. Instead of me making a bold statement, what is the order of things, how they apply on that? Oh, sure. I mean, there are certain state laws which you're allowed to waive and there's certain ones that you're not. That's kind of a general principle. Typically, if you're seeing provisions such as buyer waives his rights under XYZ, then that's not that normal. Now, waiving, like, for example, the right to a jury trial, that is a very typical provision in an agreement. There just aren't many other provisions that are just buckets like you don't have the right to this. If you're seeing stuff like that, that's definitely a red flag. This one was a, it was real estate, so it's not in this thing, but I'll give you an example. One of the guys in our, at one point I owned the local real estate investors association. He was bragging about his contract and he said that his contract on contract for deed waived the right for foreclosure because it was a contract for deed. And as Oklahoma state treats a contract for deed as a mortgage and they won't, you go, you walk in there and try to evict somebody with a contract for deed. As soon as they figure out there's any type of buying system in place where they're getting equity in the property, they'll kick it out because he doesn't have jurisdiction. And I argue with this guy left and right that like, look, state treats this differently. When you go to actually try to move somebody out of one of your houses, they're going to laugh at you and tell you, yeah, that's cute. And you got to go upstairs and deal with the, with a different court, right? Because the, the attorney that the judge that has the thing that, to do evictions and stuff, that's not his space. And he argued with me, argued with me and about six months later, he calls me back and goes, I'm in foreclosure court. I've got a less penance filed. They didn't honor my contract for deed. And the judge asked me who the hell wrote it, <laughs> right? That's where I was coming with that. There's certain things you're, that are especially consumer protection things that you're just not going to be able to waive. Yeah, no, that's crazy. Kind of similar to that in the story I was just telling, there were just some provisions that I'm trying not to get too detailed actually about it, but there were some, you know, for confidential reasons, but there were some provisions in there that just the wording of them was just like, who the heck wrote this? Like, this was clearly not the best wording. And so to kind of just turn that on its head a little bit, in another matter, we had a seller, you know, transfer all the assets and stuff, but they weren't maintained. So he actually got all the stuff. It's a horror story, but done right, protected on, because we did this other transaction. And so the guy gives him all the stuff. 
was uh, trucks, but not just your normal like trucks with a cab, but the commercial transport trucks. And so there was a lot of them. And when you have that expensive and large of an asset, they definitely need to be being maintained very well up to standards, etc. So the seller, he apparently hadn't been maintaining and thought he could just sell trucks, which weren't in full working order. It kind of makes sense if you're like, oh, maybe I won't have to pay for that from the seller's perspective. But from a buyer's perspective, it's a what the heck situation. I thought I was buying a business with these assets and obviously they need to operate. Now we had a provision in there kind of in the inverse of the other case I was referring to. We had a provision in there that said, hey, all these assets need to be in good and working order. And what does that mean? And we had a set off. We could even talk about this set offs under the seller note is something that's really important. And where we always use to protect our clients and the buyer exercising our provisions under the agreement was basically able to just tell the seller, I don't have to pay you X dollars. He didn't have to enter into a dispute. He didn't have to negotiate. All he had to do was send a notice of, of exercising a right under the agreement. Now that's a winning situation. He has no disruption of the business. Is from a cash flow perspective, he's not interrupted because now he can pay off the maintenance. It doesn't have to pay the seller a certain amount under the seller note. I know that's kind of a little complicated the mechanics I'm talking about there, but the general point of the moral of the story is there are things that happen, things that you thought was going to be perfect, and the agreements need to be covering all those circumstances. So as set off, as I know what it is, but for a lot of the guys out there, can you give a kind of a short definition of what a set off inside of a contract would be? Sure. Yeah. So in a seller note, always make sure that there is a setoff provision that is more common than not. It's pretty typical in a seller note. Always make sure there's one in there. The way it's usually worded is if any liabilities arise under the agreement, and I'm using liabilities arise under the agreement. That's a very broad language. That's typically more defined. What type of liabilities? Is there a breach? Is it indemnification issue, etc.? But the general rule is if any liabilities arise, then you can set off the amount you owe the seller under the seller note and you don't have to pay him. So if like, if he now owes you 25 grand and you still owe him a hundred grand, now you, you could set that off and you no longer have to pay him 25 grand of that. The thing is, and this is a good thing to kind of be aware of when you're looking at these provisions is some of them are drafted such that you basically need to go to court to get your right to set off again, especially in these smart, a million dollar business, it could cost you a few million dollars just to be in court. It just doesn't make any sense. You should reject any language like that. If it says that, like, for example, buyer will give notice to the seller. If the seller doesn't agree in his sole discretion, in other words, he can do whatever he want. He doesn't agree. Then he gives you notice back saying so. Maybe there's a good faith negotiation period and then it has to go to court. A lot of the provisions were drafted that way. But as you can imagine, that's almost not, that almost doesn't even give you the right. If the right is to basically go to court and collect, then what are you getting out of it? So you should make sure those provisions don't require adjudication or granted on a notice basis. There could be some language in there about it being reasonable or backed by evidence, or in other words, good for both the seller and the buyer. Neither should the buyer just have free reign on these situations. But you should definitely be looking at those provisions and thinking, how am I going to make sure I can exercise this and be protected and without having to do anything arduous? Could you put something in there that's like, 
I'm trying to think, going back to the truck situation, right? You could put some, I don't know what how it would be worded or something, but can you put something there that says, look, the trucks are getting good working order. If they're not, then we get to set off the amount. And that amount can be verified by quotes from a third party source. And you pay the actual kind of like car. Like you think of sometimes you, if you get car insurance, you got damage coming, you go get three repair estimates and the, the insurance company will say, okay, those are all within range. And you get to pick one of them and go do your work. Or some insurance company says, well, you got to pick the lowest. That's not necessarily legal. I don't think they can do that, but you, there's something in a range. Is there some way to put in the contract that says, if we come across this and you disagree, then I'll go out and get third party opinions or some formal estimate of what it's valued at. And as long as they're competent third party opinions, you have to go along with that. Is there a way to do that? Yeah, a hundred percent. That's exactly right. You can do that. And we do that. It would say kind of just what you just said. It would say something like, and then to determine the value, which is to be set off. If you're the buyer, obviously you just want to be able to have the right to pick the independent third party. Buyer shall have the right to pick a reputable independent third party and receive a quote from him and the set off sum shall be equal to all sums due and ultimately paid thereunder. It, definitely that the seller might argue, hey, well, I wanna be the person that picks any anybody who's giving any, in, or any quote basically. Now that's not necessarily in your best interest. And the seller might also argue, well, we have to agree on the person. That's also not in your best interest because then he can choose not to agree. And now right. you're dead because then it gets deadlocked out and you don't have any rights. So a better way to, if the seller were to ask for something like that, a better way to handle it is that you have to get multiple quotes. So you have to get three quotes from reputable people in the relevant industry. Then you can kind of work on that language to make sure the seller really feels like they're going to be really independent third parties in relation to it. And you'll pick the average or whatever of the quote. And so you can work on that. You have the right generally when you deal with contracts and contract law to really massage the language to ensure that it fits your needs and the other side's needs. Cool. Sorry, I'm having a little bit of issues with my camera there. We'll just keep going. <laughs> There's special effects on me. I got this halo. I don't know I thought- what happened there. So I want to talk on one more topic before we wrap up the show and stuff. We talked a little bit about the show before that. There are people in our space, this small to medium size uh, acquisitions, and they're raising money publicly online. I know you clerked at the SEC. You got some experience in that. Can you give us a high level of what should be done as far as like if you're going to raise money, there's some rules and stuff you got to file. You got to do private placement rims. This applies to both search funders. You guys out there thinking about raising money for a search fund and or if you're just looking to do some type of raise to help you buy your first company. There's some rules you got to follow. Yeah, I'd love to touch on that. We were talking about it earlier before the show because we just keep seeing people not following the rules or it appears to not be following the rules especially search funder type guys. And it alarms us. I mean, the SEC is not the DOJ, the Department of Justice. They're not going to go after you for criminal charges. The DOJ will. But the SEC, their MO is to protect investors. That is literally why they exist, to ensure that investors are receiving adequate information and accurate information, and they're protected. Obviously, there's also state law securities regulators too. So right now, I'm just going to talk generally about 
the federal securities regulator, the SEC. Now, in the context of protecting investors with disclosures and with information, the SEC basically has some rules around what you're allowed to do when it comes to raising funds like online. If you're on Facebook saying, hey, invest in my next acquisition vehicle, or if you're on LinkedIn or even speaking publicly elsewhere, there are strict rules around that. Now, it's easy to follow the rules, but most people aren't really aware of them or aren't really aware of how they operate. So I'll go ahead and explain that. The word or the catchphrase to describe this, this area is called a general solicitation. That means trying to raise funds from generally or publicly. And so when you're doing a general solicitation, you need to satisfy from what's called a certain a 506C exemption from registration. Now, what does that mean? Under Section 5 of the 1933 Securities Act, you're required when you're selling securities to get capital, you're required to register with the SEC. In other words, file a form and some information with the SEC certain documents. However, that's the general rule. However, you're exempted from that rule as long as you fit in within certain other rules. And for general solicitation, the usual go-to exemption is 506C. And there's also, if you're not generally soliciting, the go-to one is 506B. You'll hear a lot about those two. Those two are pretty common exemptions. And 506B is actually, it actually has some advantages to it. If you think that you're not really going to, if you're just going to put one Facebook post, but you're mostly going to raise everything from people you already know, then you might actually just not do that Facebook post because it's going to cause problems for you in your other fundraising. So I'll go ahead and get into the meat of it, the details of what we're talking about here. In 506C, you're allowed to raise from a number, from an unlimited number of accredited investors. So obviously you may know, and you could just Google on SEC accredited investor definition to get all the details about that. Some of the basic requirements for that are the person you're raising funds from needs to have a million dollars in net assets, not including their home property. They also need to have, depending if they're married or not, $200,000 or $300,000 in income over the past at least two consecutive years with the likelihood that that's going to continue. So they need to be making money and have a lot of money. It's kind of a high bar. If you don't do 506C, the general solicitation exemption, and you do 506B, you're also allowed to raise funds from non-accredited investors, which are called sophisticated investors. Not an unlimited number of them, just up to 35 of them. But basically, if you're raising funds from three people who make 100 grand and have 500 grand in assets, you can't use 506C. You have to use 506B. So that's really important to keep in mind. You might not, you, the guys you're raising funds from might, just might not satisfy this general solicitation rule. And you're going to have to not take their money, which may be against your objectives. So when we talk about 506C, you're only allowed to raise from accredited investors, not even these sophisticated investors, guys who have money, maybe he has 50 grand, 100 grand he wants to put in, but he just doesn't fit the qualification. You cannot take his money if you're relying on that exemption you will be breaking the securities laws. And you definitely don't want to be doing that, especially when you're raising funds and you're doing these larger deals. It's going to be connected to a multi-million dollar transaction. 
there's going to be lenders involved potentially. You don't want to be anywhere near that with the ten, or touching that with a 10 foot pole. Now, the big problem, and this is kind of my last point on this subject, because it is a, it is quite complicated, but these are definitely the key points. The last key point I have is that if you're doing an exemption under the 506C regulation, then you're required to do certain things that you're not, you kind of have to do more stuff than you have to do when you're not soliciting generally from the public. And what that usually means is you have to give accurate financial disclosures and some other information to the people you're raising funds from. So now you have a burden, you have to start giving people stuff and you have to verify their accredited status. That doesn't just mean you talk to them on the phone, you actually are required under the law to go look at their documents that prove they're an accredited investor. So now you have these extra burdens when you're raising funds like on Facebook or online, and you definitely need to include them in your fundraising process. You should have something like an accredited investor questionnaire that you hand to everybody and they have to send you the documents that, that verifies it back. That's how you check that off. In relation to the disclosures, you need to check exactly what you need to be sending people, prepare the packet, and just make sure you're sending it to everybody that you're raising funds from. It is that simple, but you definitely need to make sure you're checking out. I guess one last thing, I guess I guess I do would like to add one last key point though. You do have to, you still have to make a filing. We talked about the wording exemption from registration. We well, still have to file a different form, a very light form with the SEC if you rely on these exemptions. So you have to file a form D it's called, again, I'm not giving legal advice here. This is just general legal knowledge I'm sharing. I'm not anybody's attorney here through giving this legal advice. I need to put that classic attorney disclaimer. The general rule is you have to file a form D with the SEC. You also need to make sure that you file the, that same form or related form in each state. Each state, again, has their own securities regime. They're called the blue sky laws is the word we use in the industry for it. So you have to go check if you're in Texas, you just check, type in Texas securities requirements and you look through that and then that'll give you an understanding of what's going on. You definitely should have a securities attorney or M&A attorneys generally deal with this basic level securities work. You definitely want to have an attorney to file the forms for you. You don't want to get them wrong or anything. But you have to make sure that you file those forms also to close out. A lot of people are raising money without satisfying the exemption. They're not filing the form D, which it's just not good. I know of at least two people in back in Oklahoma before I moved to California who got cease and desist orders from the SEC for publicly raising funds online. They were posting posts and all of a sudden they got a formal letter. One of them framed it and put it on his wall like a trophy. I was like, yeah, oh, I don't think I'd hang that on my wall. He might have done that because me, I used to have one on my wall. I had a cease and desist from a big, a big internet company. I won't say which one, but a big, big internet company because I had a domain that their company sucked. And this is like, they wanted me to release a domain to them. I was mean when they sent me a cease and desist order and told me I had to real, give them the domain name or they were going to sue me. I just went in there and canceled it. So now they have to bid against somebody else to get it. There's nothing they could do, right? Like you told me to quit using it. It's not up. I don't own it anymore. It's out there in public. Good luck getting it. I hope nobody gets it for you. And they're like, that's not what we told you to do. I was like, yeah, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) What would be the right way for people to reach out to if they wanted to reach out and work with you? Oh, sure. So yeah. And I I should have said that sooner. So our M&A practice, our firm is called Optimist legal, not like Optimus Prime, the Transformers, but 
legal optimistlegal.com is our website you can reach me directly at my email it's joe at principe.com you can see my spelling of my name here so joe at principe.com is the best way um and i think even my i think my phone number is even on my website so you can access me in all sorts of ways i do prefer email though so please do hit me up by email you and your firm are you licensed to practice in certain states or is it pretty pretty wide that's right. So both I and my partner, Omid Tavier, are licensed in California. The general practice in America is that MA attorneys are licensed in either New York and California. We do most of our stuff under Delaware, Delaware law for if it's a Delaware entity or Delaware protections for transactions. So most of our stuff ends up being under those laws anyways. There are some states in which we do not practice. But typically, the way the rules work when you're when you're working in commercial transactions, we can use the phrase here because that's the phrase used in the laws. Generally, you're allowed to do M and A across the across many states. So we're pretty open. There are some states we don't practice in. You can reach out to us and ask. We would tell you. You don't even have to ask us. You could just reach out to tell us about your transaction. We'll tell you if we can't do that state, but that's not that common. Okay. Well, I appreciate having you here today, and I think we had a good time. So let's call that a show. Okay, sounds good. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918 918- Six four one four one five zero. Call our hotline. Leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created five billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between five million and 30 million who are ready to be sold, and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now